our pastor, uh, Dale and Connie's daughter, Abby, graduated from college this weekend, so they are off uh, rejoicing and celebrating on that occasion. Uh, do be in prayer for them as they travel home, and uh, that this would be a great time of uh, refreshment and enjoyment for them as a family. As Dale mentioned a couple of weeks ago, today it's uh, my privilege to look into a little more uh, deeply into the idea of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as we have been uh, working our way through Ephesians and are now at that point uh, in the passage. Over the past many months, several things have been very clear about the new life and new community that we have been talking about. God, in Christ Jesus, has called us to himself, saving us out of death and into life, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This calling is a glorious calling, for we are children of the king now, not slaves to sin. As a result of our identity in Christ, certain behaviors have changed in the new life. We interact with one another in the new community differently than we did when we were in the world. Our pastor has preached from the verses before us today already, but we're going to topically focus in on one aspect of Paul's teaching here, that of the believer's new song. There is a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, which will shed some light on our topic. And so as we work through the scripture today, I would encourage you to have both passages readily available. Put your finger in there and be able to flip back and forth uh, as we look at these passages together. Let's read our scripture for today now from Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you speak most clearly to us when we're reading your word as your Holy Spirit opens our hearts and minds to the wonderful truths that we find here. So, Father, we come to you asking that today that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts. We're all in a different place this morning. Unify us in this. Unify us in the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill us, we ask, and speak to us from your word. Amen. Here at this point in the discourse, Paul begins instructing both the Ephesians and Colossians about something that, quite frankly, seems a little odd at this point. Perhaps to those of us who've grown up in the church, this doesn't strike us as strange, but try to take a step back and be objective for a minute. Come to the passage with a fresh set of eyes and fresh ears. Paul has just given us some glorious instruction about what it means to be the church, 
who we are in Christ, how we are to step out of darkness into light and live the victorious Christian life for the glory of God, overcoming sin and darkness, how we and the new community behave towards one another, how we should live among the brethren. And then, as if out of nowhere, he says, sing to one another. Sing? You mean like carry a tune with my voice in public? Yes, that's exactly what he means. Who does that? I mean, outside of karaoke night or at the beginning of a baseball game, who gets together in public and sings anymore? Well, we do. The church does. Have you ever stopped and thought about it? Why do we sing? Why is singing one of the most defining aspects of our gathering together each week? Why did God give us this gift and then ordain it to be the vehicle for our corporate voice in worship? God doesn't specifically tell us why. We have lots of instructions to do it, how to do it, when to sing, what to sing about, but he doesn't outright explain himself. I think many of the reasons are pretty self-evident, however. John Piper says the reason we sing is because there are depths and heights and intensities and kinds of emotions that will not be satisfactorily expressed by mere prosaic forms or even poetic readings. There are realities that demand to break out of prose into poetry and some demand that poetry be stretched into song. There's something deep within us, isn't there, that wants to express the important and deep things of the heart in song. Most couples, at least when they're young and in love and starting out, have a favorite what? A song, most often. One that's theirs, that either they sing to one another or maybe they dance to it or simply enjoy listening to it with one another. I haven't heard many couples say, that's our paragraph. <laughs> you know the one in that book? Yeah, that paragraph defines our love for one another like nothing else. No, but we, they do have songs. Singing is also very powerful. It can move the emotions of a huge crowd very quickly. You only need to attend a sporting activity or a concert to see this. Even the military understands the power of patriotic songs. I enjoy sitting on my deck and watching and listening to the birds that visit our feeders, especially at this time of year. Last week, I found a new app for my iPad that helps to identify the various kinds of birds and gives information about them. So I was on my deck scrolling through it when I found a feature that plays excerpts of the songs of the birds. I happened to be on the cardinal page, and I didn't realize it, but my iPad was synced up with a portable speaker I had out on my deck. So when I began playing the cardinal songs, a male cardinal appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> and soon there was a second one, and they were flitting all around the deck area, trying to figure out where the sound was coming from. The more I played the different calls and songs, the more stirred up they got, and it became quite amusing. My wife came out and chastised me for teasing the poor guys. I don't know what I was telling them, but they were noticeably worked up about it. <laughs> Even the songs that the Creator puts in nature are powerful. 
and have power over the creation itself. Singing also helps us remember things long after we hear them. Here's a test. How many of you can quote, or for that matter, even name a title of one of Charles Wesley's sermons from 250 years ago? Anybody? How many of us can sing some of the words to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, or Christ the Lord is Risen Today, or Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, or Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, and the list goes on? Yeah, millions of us can. Wesley's legacy didn't end up being in his sermons. It ended up being in his hymns. I was, I was reminded of this again just two days ago by the story of a dear saint who at the end of her life could barely speak or remember anything, but guess what she held on to the longest? Her songs. That's right. And I hear this time and time again from folks, especially about believers in their last days, remembering the hymns that they loved to worship with. And apparently, singing is part of the imago Dei of mankind, our being created in the image of God. Did you know that God sings? In Zephaniah 3, the prophet describes a very dire time for God's people. But then he says this, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God, in response to the redemption of his people, rejoices over them with loud singing. How wonderful is that? When we sing together the praise of God, we are exemplifying one of the aspects of what it means to be made in the image of God. Image bearers. What a gift God has given us in this. Maybe before you were saved, when you were in darkness, you had no song in your heart. But now in your new life, you're called to sing and to sing about something different for different reasons and with a whole new group of people who are your brothers and sisters. In Psalm 40, David gives us a wonderful testimony of salvation with these words. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. God saves us, and he gives us something to sing about. Something new, something too marvelous for mere prose, something too grand for a poetry recitation. No, this good news must be sung by God's people. Did you see what David said as to how people would react to the new song? Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. If our worship is what it ought to be in our singing, the unbelievers that are among us should be driven to their knees even as we should every week, because as we see the glory and majesty of God in our new song and are convicted by the Spirit of God, we can't help but declare as Isaiah did in God's presence, woe is me, for I am lost. 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've been asked the question, should worship be evangelistic? Well, when it's spirit-filled and word-saturated, you bet it is. How could it not be? And so Paul begins, as David has told us, with the origin of the believer's new song. This is the first point in your outline. The origin of the new song is the Holy Spirit and the Word of Christ. Paul says in verse 18 of Ephesians 5, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the equivalent statement, if you turn to Colossians 3, reads, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Our singing is a natural outpouring of being filled with the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Word of Christ. This topic of singing wasn't a strange transition for Paul. It wasn't a transition at all. Worship and song is a perfectly natural response to understanding the glory of the gospel. And the primary means of worshiping God when his people gather is singing. Paul in these two passages affirms for us that the natural outpouring of worship and song, which flows from believers' hearts, stems from the same place that genuine worship does as Jesus explained to the Samaritan woman he met at the well. You might remember the story, and the debate that was going on was about where, in terms of geography, was God truly worshipped. Jesus explained to her that it was no longer about a building or a place in chapter 4, of John's gospel when he said, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Not only does singing come from our being filled with the spirit and being filled with truth, but I believe what we sing should be empowered by the spirit and informed with the truth of God's word. Spirit-filled worship is not mindless emotionalism. For the spirit does not operate apart from or out of bounds from the truth of the word. At the same time, worship is not merely a time to gather more information from the Bible. For knowledge apart from the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit can actually harden one's heart towards God. The spirit takes the seed of the word and does a supernatural thing with it in our hearts, causing it to sprout and grow in a miraculous, transformative way that cannot be explained in strictly emotional or pragmatic terms. To reduce worship simply to an experience that makes me cry or an instructional time of self-help is to fall way short of God's intent. Christ-centered worship is a bringing together of all the transforming means of grace, prayer, the sacraments, the word, undergirded with the God-ordained aesthetic vehicle of singing for the pleasure of God and the good of his people. This naturally flows into the next point that Paul makes in these passages. The purpose of the new song is to teach and admonish one another. 
In Ephesians, Paul uses the term to address one another, and in Colossians, teaching and admonishing one another. This is a beautiful aspect of our singing that I think we often miss. One of the primary functions of the new song in this new community is to teach and correct one another. I thought that was the preacher's job. Yes, the preacher proclaims the word in the sermon, and preaching is a means of grace like no other. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Since the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In no way this morning am I minimizing the preaching of the word. If I were, we would have just had a song service all morning. However, God has given us a precious gift and privilege in our singing to one another. Singing in our worship service is not an opportunity for us to forget everybody around us and get into some kind of zone with the Holy Spirit. It's much bigger and better than that. Each Lord's Day, everybody enters this room in a different mental and emotional state. We are all in various stages of the journey that is the Christian life. Perhaps someone who is near you today is doubting that God is in control of the affairs of the world. He's burdened by all that he sees around him and discouraged that there seems to be chaos everywhere he looks. You and your fellow believers sang these words to him when our service began today. See, he lifts his hands above. See, he shows the prince of love. Hark, his gracious lips bestow blessings on his church below. Alleluia. In essence, saying, brother, don't forget, the one we worship is standing at the throne for you. With the scars to show for it, he claims you as his own to his father, pleads on your behalf, equips you for this life, and reigns the universe from on high. That saint needed to hear that today. What about the lady two pews over who is suffering unimaginable pain in her life, loss of a relationship, death of a loved one, physical suffering that brings her low? Maybe you don't even know what to say to this person. Everything you think of seems trite and unhelpful. What can you do? What about these words that you and the rest of us just sang moments ago? Creation longs for his return when Christ shall reign upon the earth. The bitter wars that rage are birth pains of a coming age. When he renews the land and the sky, all heaven and Earth will sing and reply with one resplendent theme, the glories of our God and King. Hang on, sister. God isn't finished with us yet. All this suffering that we're going through is but momentary birth pains for a glorious new eternal life with him. And then there's that person who has lost their job. Maybe they're in financial ruin. Their self-esteem is at rock bottom Again, we sing the word of God to them too. I will glory in my Redeemer, my life he bought, my love he owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, his faithfulness, my standing place. 
Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm, held by his grace. Do you see what it is that we do here each Lord's Day in our singing? You're not just singing a few songs to get yourself pumped up and emotionally ready for the sermon. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are singing the truths of God's word into one another's lives, teaching, and yes, sometimes rebuking one another. Even when we're living in sin, we need to be told, hey, Christ died for you so you could put that to death. Don't forget it. We need to hear the gospel sung to us by one another every single week. How does this change our approach to singing on Sunday mornings? If we really grasp what Paul's telling us here, I think the ceiling would not be able to contain our song. And the smiles and tears of joy and gladness would be everywhere you looked in the room. Come ready to encourage one another. Come ready to be encouraged. So what do these songs look like that we teach and admonish one another with? Paul gives us three descriptors in both passages. The kinds of new songs are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I've read and studied enough through the years to understand that scholars disagree as to precisely what Paul means by all of these words specifically. I'm not sure that's really the point anyway. Certainly we know what he means by psalms. Hymns are generally considered to be those songs outside of the biblical songbook that worship and praise one of the Trinity. Perhaps spiritual songs are songs of experience and testimony. But in any case, Paul seems to be saying that there are a variety of types of songs that we can use in our response to who God is. We desire here at St. Andrews to utilize the divine hymnal of the book of Psalms. They're prevalent in our worship services. We also want to use the best of what has been written by the church for the past 2,000 years, songs from the past and present. And we will no doubt continue to add from future generations contributions to the church's song repertoire. What an incredible gift to be able to draw from such a deep well of great songs of worship. We try to represent the diversity of these songs even by their placement and title within the worship guide. Hymns or psalms of worship or confession or commitment or response. Songs are carefully chosen not only to support the preaching and passage of the day, but to also give you, the congregation, the appropriate words at a particular moment in the service to give back to God. While we've said that one purpose of our singing is to teach one another, notice that we didn't say that our songs are directed toward one another. Paul says in verse 19 of Ephesians and in verse 16 of Colossians that the audience of the new song is God. There may be a great deal of teaching and encouraging and correcting going on, but our singing and making melody is directed to the Lord. We sing to God not to one another. And herein is a beautiful byproduct of our worship and song to God. When we come each Lord's day to honor our Savior and to worship our King, as our praise and song rises heavenward to his throne, God is pleased to allow his blessings to drip down on the congregation for our benefit.
and for his glory. What a mercy from our God that the worship which is rightly directed to him and fully received by him is also a blessing and grace to his people. Paul tells us that this singing we do when we are together, it isn't to be half-hearted, uninvolved, or something to just get through. No, the scope of the new song is complete. It involves our hearts as well as our minds. In some versions, verse 19 of Ephesians reads, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Whether your translation has the word all in it or not is really irrelevant, for if our hearts are in something, we're all in. To be half-hearted is to be uninvested. We might even say his heart really isn't in it. When we speak of the heart in spiritual terms, we are, of course, not talking about the organ, which pumps blood through our bodies, but rather that part of us where our will and emotions reside. The seat of the affections, as the ancients might have referred to it, is the core of who we are. When we sing to God and worship as we should, it involves all that we are. We should come together ready to give our all as we address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So why do we sing to God with our whole hearts? What drives us to join in this activity? The motivation of the new song is gratitude. In Ephesians, Paul says that we are to give thanks always and for all things. And in the parallel passage, he says our singing is to be done with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Thankfulness. Thankfulness for what? Well, Paul says for all things. I suppose we'd run out of ink and paper if songwriters were to attempt to thank God for all things in their hymn writing. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But honing in a bit, we see throughout the Scripture, especially in the divine hymn book of the Psalms, that our singing, our worship, is to be in response to two of the great attributes of our God. These two attributes are the, what we see threaded throughout the Scriptures from cover to cover. Take a look at the great hymn of worship, Psalm 100, that's very familiar to us. It is the only entry in the Psalter that has the heading, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. The twofold role of God in his universe is that of creator, the one who made it all good, sustains it even now, and will make it new again one day. And secondly, his role as redeemer, the one who rescues us and brings us into his fold and will complete his acts of redemption fully in the end. God made us and he has redeemed us, and for this, above all else, we are filled with gratitude in our hearts and come singing with thanksgiving. The final point in your outline is the nature of the new song is communal. 
As our pastor preached last week, Paul ends this section calling us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the Colossians passage, Paul does not end his paragraph with a similar statement. However, he does begin the paragraph in verse 12 telling us to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, and above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's a good musical term. Could this not be a great definition of what it means to submit to one another? How would our submitting to one another be being compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forbearing, forgiving, and loving? How would this affect our singing and our worship when we gather? Well, for one, the worship wars over a style of music that have raged in the church for the last 40 years would cease because our singing wouldn't be based on whether or not we liked the style of worship music we were using. Out of deference and honor to one another, we would submit our wills to the greater good of the church and for the glory of Christ. You see the emphasis? We sing to him and submit to one another. We put away our wants and desires out of our reverence to Christ. It's not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus. Maybe this morning you find all of this very strange. Maybe God hasn't given you a new song yet. And you feel as though you're an outsider looking in. Today, turn from yourself and your sin. Believe that only Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, can save you. Confess him Lord of your life and be saved. And like David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and the rest of us in God's family, you too will have a song of testimony, something to sing about from this time on and through all eternity. We are commanded over and over in the scriptures to sing in corporate worship. But you don't understand, Mark, I can't sing, and you really don't want me to try. The emphasis on that statement is wrong. God doesn't call only the skilled to sing. God calls the weak and the ill-equipped to worship him for his glory alone, not for our beautiful ability. God's people are a singing people. We have always been a singing people. Listen to these words of John Wesley in his Rules for Congregational Singing. Sing all. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up, and you will find a blessing. Pastor and contemporary hymn writer Bob Coughlin says, Remember, worship is a state of heart. Musical sound is a state of art. Let's not confuse the two. The critical question is not, do you have a voice, but do you have a song? Perhaps you don't have a great voice. Maybe you can't even match pitch. But are you at least able to follow along and mouth or whisper the words 
that are being sung. The point is to join in in some way, somehow. Don't be left behind. Don't allow yourselves to be robbed of participating in our corporate singing. I've heard it said that our worship here is a rehearsal for our eternal worship in heaven. The Apostle John gives us some wonderful glimpses of that in his revelation. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I suspect that on that day, none of us will hold back our voices. There will be no spectators in that service, no voiceless saints in that grand song. Well, what are we waiting for? This reality that is to come has already been secured in Christ. We need not keep silent in our song. He is worthy of our loudest praise, even now, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Oh God, you have called the weak things of the world, the foolish things of this life to confound the wise. Help us to be fools for you in our song, not only in this room, but as we live it out day after day and week after week. Help all those around us to see that new song that you planted in our hearts, not just a a, a literal song, but our whole lives being lived out for you. Let others see that song that you've implanted in us and fear and trust in you. Cause our church in this community to be light in darkness and hope in times of dire need in our world and in our nation and in our community. Thank you for implanting this new song, for making us partners in this, for giving us the ability to take the good news even from this place and to share it with all of those around us. Lord, help our singing, help our worship to testify to the greatness of Christ, to the glory of who he is, May we point to the cross, to the resurrection, to the ascension, and to his coming again in all that we do. Keep us faithful and enable us to do this in the power of your spirit and through the power of your word, we ask. Amen.